0: Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today I am joined by Jeff Charles, the host of a fresh perspective podcast. He's a contributor for Red State Newsweek Opinion and also has a sub stack, which you can see on your screen, called Chasing Liberty. Mr. Charles, thank you for your time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this.
0: You have an article titled Beyond Black and White: How Media Outlets Use Race to Divide and Conquer. What is your thesis in this article?
1: Basically my overall point, and I'm, I'm far from the only person who has made this point, but you know, the problem is that we have a lot of division in our society. Uh, the elite ruling class through the media, through the government has managed to find a lot of different wedge issues to divide the American public so that we're at, at each other's throats rather than holding them accountable. So race is one of those issues. And I'm not the type to say that there are no racial issues in America. I do believe that racial issues exist. I believe that it's a problem. I believe that it's a problem in our government and in society. That doesn't mean that I necessarily uh, subscribe to the progressive way of thinking about race. Like I don't think that there's a a Klansman or a Nazi waiting behind every tree to lynch me just because I'm Black. That's not happening. But there are some legitimate issues that need to be discussed. The problem is that nobody really wants to have honest conversations about it. It's either you're a racist if you disagree with me, or you're a race baiter if you disagree with me. And one of the ways that they have divided us is black and white, uh, Hispanic and white, Asian and everybody, you know, and that's just one of of many issues. There's also gender, sexuality, and a lot of other issues. So the idea is that I, I like to bring this to people's attention, because I see on both sides of the spectrum, left and right, that they both do the exact same things to each other. On the left, you've got people painting white people as if they're this broad brush, they're all racist, or most of them are racist, or they're this and that, and they ascribe certain things based on skin color. And on the right, even though the right doesn't want to admit it, they do the same thing. They do the same thing with with black people they paint us all with a with the broad brush um if you look at all those videos what i call black man bad porn <laughs> where all those videos were with black people being violent it does lead people to think that most black young black men are engaging in these violent crimes and then they'll use the statistics but in reality it's only a small fraction of us that do that so just like there's a small fraction of white people who are racist there's a small fraction of Black people who engage in this behavior, yet our media elites have got us thinking uh, that that the the fringe represents the whole, and it's a very clever and and, and insidious way to divide us. So
0: it seems like uh, the uh, fraction case that they take a fraction and then you know hyper focus on that is the source of this entire fallacy, the gender. Uh, divide, the race divide, is it really based in the idea that uh, disparities are proof of discrimination? The the example I use is men are 50 percent of the population, yet according to Washington Post, 95 percent of those killed by police. That's not proof of sexism because men have 17 times the amount of testosterone and are more violent or the um, the gender pay gap doesn't account for different skills different value and the different jobs and the different number of hours is the disparities and discrimination assumption the source of this issue or is there something else
1: well i think it's more of an agenda than anything else i mean because the disparities depending on what you're talking about like with men like it's objectively true that men were more violent than women i mean women will cut you down with their tongues with, with their mouths we'll cut you down physically, right? So there's gender differences there. So in some cases, those are legitimate. Now, when it comes to disparities like in racial issues, yeah, some of that can be attributed to racism, I think, especially given our history and and how that history still affects us today. But just because like saying in one instance, if white people are doing better than black people to say that's automatically racism, 100% and no other factors contribute to it that's where we started getting into, into trouble. That's when we start to have a more simplistic and unnuanced view towards these situations. So to me, it's like, I can say, oh yeah, so some of the wealth is just disparities. I'm sure racism plays into that as well, but class plays into that as well. Education plays into that as well. Government plays probably the most, the biggest part. I mean, the, the, if people are being oppressed or if they're being held back, chances are the government is probably most of that problem.
0: So what can we learn, you think, from the example of Asians who on average have uh, incomes that are 30 percent higher than whites, even uh, after, you know, uh, two decades after Japanese internment, Japanese had incomes that were 30 percent higher than whites. Is it something that so we can say that it's not the right uh, uh, approach, which is that the races are different? and therefore uh, the true divide is race. It's not the critical theorist approach. Are there any cultural attributes that Asians have embraced that the rest of us should uh, attempt to emulate in order to uh, uh, see success as through that avenue as opposed to constantly dividing people?
1: You know, here's here's this is a good question, and this is something that I actually like to talk about. So Asians and black people have a different history in this country. I mean, it, it's object- objectively crue- true. Uh, the government has done way more against black people than say Asians. However, there are also things that we have done as com- community as, as far as giving into that and not doing the things that we need to do to get forward. You know, it reminds me of, of Malcolm X, um, you know, when, when he's talking about cultural issues, if you ever listen to the ballot or the bullet speech, he spends a lot of time castigating black people for not practicing economics the way they should. He was talking about how you'll complain about us not coming up as a community, but you're spending all your money with white owned businesses or you're spending it outside of our community. You should be, if you want black people to come up economically, we got to spend it together. We don't need to wait for the government to get this, their stuff together before we can get ahead. I mean, you, we had black Wall Streets all over this country. People only know, know about the one in Tulsa, but they were all across the country. The government didn't help us do that. As a matter of fact, they tried to stop it. And the ones that did get stopped were stopped in large part by the government either allowing it or doing it themselves. So I, I so it's both of those things. And with Asians, they have had a different culture and, and, and Asians have their struggles too. But at the same time, they have a different experience, but they've also responded differently to a lot of the issues that, that the government has done to them. So I think uh, somewhere along the line, we were doing the same thing back in the day. We valued education and we value, valued our own self um, sustainability. And somewhere along the line, especially when progressivism started to creep in to black intel- into the black intelligentsia, that's where I think you really start to see things go wrong.
0: And that is such an optimistic point that I wish genuine progressives who are just a little misled would appreciate because they'll tell us proudly, you know, ever since the Civil Rights Act of 1965, black incomes have increased at a rate of four percent almost every year, not mentioning the fact that 35 years prior, that same four percent figure was constant. So you don't get to blame the thing that they jump in front of a parade when it's already going and say, look at this thing I've created. Uh, they, they do the same mm-hmm. thing with child labor and, uh, and everything else. Are you familiar with the thesis that um, the reason we see a big disparity in black immigrants versus Native American blacks is because they have different cultures?
1: I, I, yeah, I've had that I've heard that discussion and I've talked about that as well. So culture is different, but there's other factors that play into that as well. like, like for instance, like the immigrants that come here, Tend not to be the poorest of the poor. Like say if they're coming from Nigeria, um, and I can't remember I can't remember the, the numbers and the stats off the top of my head. I haven't studied this in a while, but like uh, more often than not, when they come here, they already have some level of education, or their family is already well to do. Not necessarily like millionaires, but they're, but they're well to do. So they're coming over here already with that. And then yeah, a lot of African cultures are are different. They, they and I think that they kind of value the American the quote unquote, American dream more because they didn't come up through all the discrimination. So they get here and they're like, this is great. I can do stuff that I couldn't do in Nigeria. That's going to affect the culture. That's going to affect the, the work ethic. And they don't have a lot of the baggage that we as people who as, who descend from slaves that that we do. So that, that, that those are just a few things that, that account for that.
0: Okay. And uh, finally, uh, you mentioned that blm is white progressives in political blackface i am so offended please tell me what this
1: means before i freak (laughs) out wow you went back for that one i wrote that a long time ago (laughs) yeah it is i mean and, and 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 i have to be clear here because people mistake between black lives matter the movement and between black lives matter the global foundation and Black Lives Matter, the local chapters. It's a little bit more complex than what people will talk about in the media, whether it's right or left. When I'm talking about Black Lives Matter being white progressives and political blackface, I'm talking specifically about the global organization, the one uh, that has had all those scandals where it's turned out to be a huge grip. They're taking all these donations from well-meaning white progressives who think that they're helping black people by sending money to this organization Turns out that they were using it to enrich themselves. But the thing is, even though they have black faces at the forefront, this is really a white progressive endeavor. This is born of 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 the progressivism that they learned in, in Ivy League schools, who are run by who white progressives. A lot of the people that buy a lot of the black faces that you see out in the forefront that buy into a lot of this stuff, they're way out of touch with regular one of the run of the mill black folks, like 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 the gender issues. Black folks aren't doing those pronouns and stuff like that. But if you came up in an an elite white progressive institution, you're buying into a lot of that. And the Black Lives Matter Global Foundation definitely buys into a lot of that intersectionality and and all that stuff. They got into a huge controversy over it.
0: When it comes to things like um, I should have looked this up before when it comes to things like uh, gay marriage or interracial marriage, are blacks more or less likely than whites to be in favor of or be OK with those things? Do you know?
1: You know, I I don't know. I don't know the statistics on that, but I would suspect I mean, because black people tend to be a little bit more socially conservative. I mean, we are a little bit more live and let live, but as far as interracial marriage goes, there's not a lot, I don't, I haven't met a lot of black people who are against it. There are some who are very Afrocentric and they want you to marry, b- marry black women, marry black men. Um, but in general, we don't really care when it comes to the sexuality issues. It's just, I mean, people will do what they do. Don't try to stuff it down my throat. Don't try to make me embrace it, that kind of thing. But that that's basically where, where black people stand based on my experience coming up. <laughs>
0: When it uh, comes to things like, well, when I first heard this uh, political blackface, I was thinking about it and I paused the video and I remember thinking, all right, I want to see if I can predict what he's trying to say beforehand. And I couldn't really come up with much. And I just sat at the back of my head and I said... You know, maybe it's the fact that the vast majority, almost every black person and most whites that I talk to are like, yeah, of course, people should have school choice. Why? Why would you not have such a thing? And it turns out none of the heads of BLM or the black or white think school choice is a legitimate venture at all. Or when it comes to the amount of policing, the average uh, black person, I think I heard like 80 percent wants. More police in response to violent crimes, not victimless crimes. But you hear from the you know white advocates, they're like, uh, "We mean defund and abolish the police and have social services instead." That is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Anything more on uh, this that you want to share?
1: Well, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of inside baseball. You might have already kind of seen some of this stuff, but I mean, within black conservatism and black progressivism, you know, there's always the trope where. P- Black people on the left will refer to black conservatives as Uncle Toms, Coons. And, and the, the idea is that these are just black faces, but speaking, they're white, white conservative talking points. There is some truth to that. I won't get all into it. But what's funny is that when they're doing that, they're projecting. So when you see these black faces on MSNBC spouting all this far, way far leftist claptrap, guess who they're working for? They're not doing that on their own. They're working for white progressives who hire them to say these things. They get paid big bucks to call people racist. So to me, there's disingenuousness on both sides of this. And realistically, I I, I feel that the the black progressives are way more out of touch than a lot of other people. So you, what you what you said hit it on the head. They don't want school choice, but the average black woman and black man want school choice. That's just one example.
0: Yeah. Uh, when it comes to uh the. The BLM example I am so kind of obsessed with because from the libertarian standpoint, it's like the state is – first they say monopolies are terribly evil and we need to watch out for them. Also, the government should have a monopoly on the police and judicial system. Okay, that enough is bad. They say this group has a right to initiate violence. They can arrest you and do all these things. If you resist them, they have the right to shoot you. No one else has this right. And people look at this monopoly on violence and say, you know what, I think the problem is skin color. Even when you get people like Tony Timpa being suffocated to death by mm-hmm. Dallas police, Kelly Thomas being killed on security camera, uh, Michael Byrd killing unarmed Ashley Babbitt on January 6th. Mm-hmm. They still look at it through a lens of race. What is a productive way we could channel this conversation about police toward the libertarian lens versus the critical theorist racist lens?
1: Wow, I mean, this could be a whole episode all on its own. I mean, first off, I mean, like with Tony Tempa, Daniel Shaver, Ryan Whittaker. Honestly, I wish I would see more white people out protesting that stuff. I mean, I, I mean, Black Lives Matter protested for Daniel Shaver, the the local chapter, not the global organization. They protested. Tariq for Nasheed
0: even said it was wrong.
1: Thank exactly. you, Tariq. And, yeah. and you know, there was a young kid. I can't remember what state he was in. He was killed by a police officer. He was unarmed. Uh, what's this? Uh, Benjamin Crump and all Sharpens showed up at his, at his funeral, white kid. So to me, they, they understand that this is a national issue. Now we can get into the numbers and, and you know, you know black people are more likely to be abused by police, and there are a lot of different reasons for that. Racism being one of them, but there are several other reasons. But the problem is that if somebody's racist, if, if my neighbor down the street is racist, I don't care, I mean, I don't like it. I would prefer for him not to be racist, but I don't have to care. But if he has the power of the government behind him, now I care because that's going to affect my life. So you have these people talking about systemic racism and how the government's so racist, but their solution is to make that government stronger. We need to get people to see, first off, you're never gonna get rid of racism. Bigotry exists in every country and at every time. We can decrease it and we can use persuasion to do that. But the bottom line, the, the, the first priority should be able to make sure that that bigotry can't hurt you. And the only way it really can is if it has the power of an entity that has a monopoly on violence to use that against you. But if you even go further, that's going to help everybody. If police don't, aren't able to abuse us in the way that they want to, then we don't really have to worry about their attitudes as much, if that makes sense. Sure,
0: sure. Uh, but... When it comes to even, uh, you know, outside the monopoly on violence uh, issue, I would still think it would all else equal. It would absolutely suck to be in a place where you're constantly being negatively generalized because of your race or, you know, if everyone's terrified of you um, or you're not getting, you know, the, the ability to access jobs or I mean, just looking at it from when I was in school, all I was taught in Arizona uh, state schools was that whites are uniquely evil because they participated in slavery uniquely. And I always felt terribly insecure about that. So it, even though oh, a police officer, no, I didn't do it, exactly. Well, cause I was a collectivist at the time. I thought everything uh, bad uh, for, from uh, my race I'm responsible for and to take pride in anything is, is absolutely terrible. Um, when it comes to uh, leading by example, as far as how to have an honest uh, conversation about important racial issues uh, what are some of the things that come to mind? Uh, because uh, Al Sharpton certainly uh, isn't doing it.
1: You know, I think, I mean, in, in, in terms of racism, I think that most of the progress that we've made is because as a society, we started changing. You know, and if you think back to Jim Crow and segregation, that wasn't organic. The government enforced that. The government did segregation. Now, were, were, were there people naturally segregating? Yes, and they still are today. But we, had, as a society, had to move, start moving forward. That's actually one of the reasons why Jim Crow laws were in effect in the first place, because people weren't discriminating enough. Because even if you don't like somebody's color of the skin, you still like the color green, right? So to me, yes, I, I think racism is an issue. I don't think it was nearly as bad as it was for me as it was for my parents and for my grandparents or for my great-grandparents. I think that these are things that the government needs to get out of. And I think if the government isn't as powerful, a lot of these divisions don't really matter. But if you think about it, the federal government didn't exist or if it was just stripped down, we wouldn't really care who runs it. So I I know I'm kind of all over the place because there's a lot in that question, but I think that we need to recognize that it's not about black versus white per se. It's really about regular folks against the ruling class Elites like I have a friend, he says it all the time. He's, he's a white regnet from Dimebox, Texas. And he says, I think that the average red and white regneck has more in common with a regular black person than they think. But we don't have those conversations anymore. So that, that and that's by design
0: that was the one funny SNL skit that i've seen in 10 years tom hanks is a trump supporter and agrees with all the other blacks on uh, on Germany, and they're and they're completely in line with everything and i go whoever wrote this skit is at a level of brilliance that no one else at uh, at snl uh, is at
1: um that was great cuz they made a really good statement
0: uh, mhm um, I was accused of being a race essentialist for asking this question, but I uh, will ask it again. Um, when it comes to what is it that whites need to hear uh, that they haven't heard that people like Dr. Umar Johnson or Louis Farrakhan are not articulating? Wh- uh, what, uh, is there anything you would want to say to whites in general to get them to understand the plight of blacks? Because as far as who's leading the racial discussion, it's just absolutely terrible.
1: Not really, I guess what I would really say is, and, and I would actually say this to black people too, because even just the analogy I did about white rednecks and, and black, uh, regular, regular black folks, got to start talking to each other, touch grass. Your influencers are lying to you on both sides. I don't care what side you're on. They're lying to you about what 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 the other person thinks. What they don't want is for us to sit down and have conversations. So to me, it's like, if you really want to understand where black people are coming from, Talk to a black person, <laughs> I mean, and I, and I don't mean like talked in, in the political sphere, not in social media because things get, you know, really politicized there. But I mean, it just, a lot of you probably already have black friends and black people have white friends. Just have conversations, but not just have the conversations, be willing to listen, be willing to hear. Do not give into that knee jerk response to go to whatever your political narrative is, because I don't care who you are. We all, we've all we all been given a script from, the, from our influencers and sometimes they, we just get into repeating those talking points. Get outside of that. Just get outside of that. Use your own brain and just have regular cordial conversations. I think that, that if all of us did that, a lot of this stuff would be solved. It sounds kind of trite, but it's true.
0: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, When it comes to other articles, this one really caught my eye. Breaking the spell, how the intellectual class helps the state control the masses. What is your thesis in this article, which you can find on the Chasing Liberty substack?
1: So that kind of ties into what we've been talking about. That article was inspired by a part in uh, Murray Rothbard's um, Anatomy of the State when he talks about how the government uses the intellectual class—he uh, calls them the opinion molders—the people who mold all of our opinions. That's actually what I was, what, what I was just talking about. These opinion molders work with the authoritarians. They work with the state. And again, I don't care what side they're on. On it happens on the right and on the left. You know, when, like, for instance, perfect example: if a black man gets unjustly killed by a police officer, you've got the narrative coming from the left. Oh. White cops are racist. All cops are racist, and anybody who even questions whether maybe the cop might have been justified is a racist. On the other side, you've got people on the right saying, well, maybe the, the cop was right, or let's pull up this guy's criminal records so that nobody feels bad about him getting killed. When you when they do that, they're protecting the state. And I think that to me, these opinion molders, in each in their own way, is designed to help the government amass more power, to amass more influence, to keep us distracted while the government does what it does. It's one of the reasons why a lot of the things, things that I write about on, on Red State, or if I talk about it on Twitter, tends to be news stories that fly under the radar because we're distracted by a guy in a beer can, right? So to me, these opinion molders, they they serve a purpose. And I think most of them don't even realize that they're doing it. That's how brainwashed the, that, that we have become. So when Murray Rothbard is talking about this, when I read this in Anatomy of the State, I was like, "Wow, that 100% explains what we're dealing with right now." He called them the intellectual class, and today they're not as intellectual, but they're still, but they still serve the same purpose. So that's what I was that that's what I was trying to drive home with that article. If what if you're being something told something by your favorite influencer, whether you like them or not, you know, second, it's okay to second guess it. Check it yourself because. They're there to mold your opinions, and they do a very good job at it, and they do it without you even knowing it.
0: That's the amazing part, because it's not like Joe Biden is on a Zoom meeting with all the intellectuals telling him, here's what you guys have to say. But what they do is they make you financially dependent on them. So just as we've never been told, hey, don't say anything bad about our CEO or else you'll get fired, there's an understanding He is the guy who gives you the job, gets you the money. Don't talk bad about him. You'll just ruffle feathers. So when the state gets a monopoly on compulsory education, if the Catholic Church tried compulsory education, it'd be kidnapping. Not a total uh, monopoly on education, but just the compulsory part. Well, that allows so many people to automatically have their default be, well, yeah, the state's a legitimate organization. The wars are more or less uh, justifiable. That's how you can get conservatives to say things like, I care about personal responsibility. Also, that officer is not responsible for his actions because he was just following orders. That was just the law. I would love... I gotta pull the. I was so scared last time I talked to a cop, but next time I'm gonna do this. When they're like, uh, "That's a great deal of drugs you have there. You're under arrest." I'm just gonna say, "No, no, I'm a drug dealer. I'm just doing my job." And since just doing your job is a legitimate way of acting in society, <laughs> take it up with my boss. He's he's the head drug uh, dealer in charge over here. Uh, it, it's amazing how the intellectual class is uh, able to influence. What is, uh besides this, what is the most important uh, lesson you learned from reading Murray Rothbard?
1: Ooh, wow. Um, you know, that lesson hit me hard just because I'm part of media. Um, and I've always tried to be responsible with my platform, but that really convicted me. I was like, I really need, I mean, I don't have the biggest platform in the world, but it, it's, it's, it's a decent size. You know, I have to be careful with how I'm leading people because a lot of people will just... Believe what's told them, and I try to encourage people not to do that. I mean, people think that the state is the ultimate enemy, and I agree, but without the media, the state mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to do most of the stuff that they do. Without the media, we don't, we probably don't get involved in the Spanish American War, we probably don't invade Iraq twice, we don't stay in Afghanistan for 20 years. Without them, the way we, we just have, we libertarians like say, without the government who would lock you up for smoke, for smoking a plant? I would say well without the media how would the government do that in the first place? So to me that's really what hit me the hardest. I'd say the other parts is just really understanding what the government is. And it really revolutionized the way I use language. Um like for instance, like um like when we say oh well marijuana is illegal so if you're caught with it, then they'll take you to jail. No, that's not, they're not, they're not going to arrest you. That's not what they're doing. They're hitting, they're sending men with guns and badges to kidnap you against your will, using the threat of physical violence up to and including your death to throw you in a cage. That is the right language to be using. So if I would say if there, there was one main thing that I got from Murray Rothbard is that I need to make sure I'm using accurate language to really describe what the government is doing. Because when we do that, one, it's irrefutable. No status can say, oh no, that's not what's happening. Oh, well, if you, just, if you don't have the right sticker on your car and they pull you over, they're not gonna arrest you. They're just gonna give you a fine. Okay, so if you think it's BS that I have to have a sticker on my car and I don't pay it, what are they gonna do? They're gonna send men with guns and badges to use a threat of physical violence to throw you in a cage, haul you in front of a judge and extort that money out of you with the physical threat of violence up to and including your debt. It's the same thing.
0: Yeah, that uh, the stuff like that is so eye-opening when you read uh, people like, uh, like Murray Rothbard. I came across this Edward Snowden quote uh, as far as how do we combat uh, this intellectual class and media control over the minds of the masses. Snowden says, the whole system revolves around the idea that the majority can be made to believe anything so long as it is repeated loudly and often, and it works. I had a former intelligence officer on my show, Chase Hughes, and he said, you know, I've done 15,000 uh, 15, hours of research on mind control and MKUltra, and if I had to, de- to describe mind control in one word, it would be repetition. With these two lessons, it took me a long time to learn that repetition really is at the heart of something when you say it so many times in such a confident manner, people end up believing it. When it comes to uh, other uh, lessons we can learn from what the media does and how we advocates of things like the non-aggression principle can embrace those and use them to our advantage, what else comes to mind as far as solutions go?
1: You know, and, and you're 1000% correct. I mean, Joseph Goebbels said something very similar to that, right? Um, and to me, and, and even if you look at Trump, if you notice, he repeats himself a lot when he's doing <laughs> his speeches. That guy is a, is a master persuader. Yeah, I know Scott Adams said that, but I saw that too when when he was campaigning. This guy's good at persuasion. I would say as, as far as the liberty movement goes, what we need to be doing is a lot of that same thing, but we also need to put it into action. So um, so I, was, I spoke at the Libertarian Party of Texas's, or I'm sorry, of, of, of Travis County here in Austin. Uh, me, Donnie and I, my, my partner, we spoke there. And our main message is that we need, as a movement, we need to start getting on the ground more. Um, you know, being involved in the digital space is great. I'm not knocking it. I have a digital platform. We all want to grow these and you can win people over through that way. Like people like Dave Smith with his podcast has won a lot of people over to the Liberty Movement. Yeah. But I'll tell you, when you're on the ground actually fighting for people's rights and they see you out there, that's what's going to win more people over on a local level. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the situation with Pastor Moses in, uh, in Gastonia, North Carolina, uh, long story short for your audience, this guy's been feeding the homeless for 20 years, tr- started to ramp up his efforts when COVID hit, and he wanted to, to have homeless people on his church property, his private church property, and the city is giving, giving giving him a really hard time about it. They've been drowning him in fines and all this other stuff because they don't want him to feed the homeless. They don't, they don't want him to do his ministry like the Bible says. Spike Cohen with his organization called You Are the Power has been drawing a lot of attention to this, and over this whole fiasco... Uh, The Spite's been there for him. The local libertarian party has been there for him. I interviewed him for an article and he said, you know, I've been a lifelong Democrat. I'm a libertarian now. And I could tell that story numerous times with other examples. When you're actually there providing a benefit to the community and you're doing it under the banner of liberty, you're going to convert people just automatically. You don't really even have to sell a lot of the ideas because you're putting them into action. So I would say as a movement, that's what we really need to be focusing on in this next round coming up.
0: Yeah, I am trying to find uh, the article because um, uh, Spike Cohen told me about this uh, incident when uh, we were at Freedom Fest. And there are a lot of these examples where you actually are not allowed to feed the homeless unless the state has given you a license to do so and say, yes, it's okay for this to occur. There was a case in Kansas City. I can't the the link just isn't coming up, but the guy's name was Rex Archer. He was a uh, health official. In Kansas City, and he ordered his employees to go pour bleach on food that was intended uh, to be given to the homeless people, to which when he was asked about this, he said, well, this is actually a policy we have. And if you don't have a permit to distribute food, well, then we do that in order to uh, explicitly contaminate it because it might be contaminated. So once we explicitly do that, then the homeless people know that it's too dangerous and then they just move on. It's like it, th- this is the great Thomas Sowell lesson compared to what I don't like uh, this food isn't uh, r- really great compared to what starving these houses aren't up to you know total code compared to what being homeless or compared to being uh, in a uh, mansion. This is a low wage compared to being unemployed. It, mm. It's the great wisdom that libertarians have been providing for so long. So I asked Spike, I said, so what's the lesson out of something like this? And he said, I think the lesson is uh, statistics are important, logic is important, historical events are important. But being able to tell stories and make the violence of the state real to show it's suffering is what we can learn from things like the Kansas City and North Carolina example, because it also happened in Phoenix and DC. When it comes to uh, telling stories, is that uh, anecdotal evidence that we should avoid or something we should embrace and capitalize on?
1: No, we should be focusing on stories more than the statistics, more than the logic, even more than the the philosophy. The stories will make the philosophy real. It's one thing to be up in the philosophical space, talking ideology, talking ideas. That's all great. But you can't put that between two pieces of bread and eat it for dinner if you're starving, right? You can't put that over your head to give you shelter when the government is in the, the, the situation that you just described that happened with pastor Moses. Well, okay. Well, we don't want the homeless staying here. Okay. As opposed to what being out on the street and freezing to death, the city said, yes, people froze to death. They died. People OD'd out in the streets. It was disgusting. So to me, that's, that's actually one of the, the, the directions that I've been taking my substack in because I really want to tell a lot of these local stories and I've got people hitting me up like, like a, Town like two hours away from me, I'm looking into something there that I'm gonna be reporting on. Same thing, local government abusing people, using code violations to to abuse people. This stuff happens everywhere. And what I always say to people is, don't think for a second that this isn't happening in your community. If you look it up, you'll find it. We need to stop focusing so much on the federal and national politics. Yes, that's important. But if you're gonna be abused by a government, chances are it's gonna be your local government. And that's why I want as many stories of these as possible. Like one of my mottos is my, I want Chasing Liberty to empower grassroots activism one story at a time. And that's very important. I mean, because stories do persuade. It really brings it home rather than just saying, well, you know, the government using violence sucks. If I give them an example, if I tell a story of somebody I know who was beaten by officers or things like that, or if they read the story, that's going to hit home a lot harder.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like, I could hear about, you know, a hundred thousand civilians in Tokyo Mm -hmm. getting murdered in Operation Meeting House in March of 1945. And it's like, it's sad. And, you know, the pictures are horrifying and everything. And that brings you a little closer. But it's like, all right, seeing Eric Garner get suffocated to death, that is going to be in my brain forever. And that makes it so much worse than even 100,000 deaths. And those people were almost all innocent. So it is the ability to to focus on a story, to really, uh, to make it real in our minds. So here is what I was uh, referring to. November of 2018, health department inspectors pour bleach on food meant for homeless people in Missouri. The interesting uh, one that uh, just popped up. Is uh, the Washington Post saying after pouring bleach on food made for the homeless, Kansas City officials change course? I don't know what that uh, update is, but I am curious to read it. I care much more about this evil stopping and changing than I am about, oh, well, that they're still totally evil and they're probably not going to change. I really hope they do change because that is just an unbelievable crime. The poorest people. And they're regulating it under the guise of helping them the very exact imperialism that they think they're so you know, clever to say, oh, the British Empire was imperialist. You want Washington, D.C. and state governments to coercively rule over hundreds of millions of strangers.
1: It's no different. And who's standing up for those people who stood up for those homeless people? Maybe, maybe there were some people who were. But here's my thing. Who is standing up against these local governments for this stuff? Mm-hmm. You know. Democrats kind of do it. If if it's police involved, you'll see them come out of protest. I'm not talking about the writers. I'm talking about people who actually just peacefully protest. They'll come out, they'll speak, they'll raise hell, they'll draw attention to it. Great. Republicans, they don't do much of anything. Like they they, they may do some marches for abortion and stuff like that. But in general, if somebody's rights get violated, you're not going to get a bunch of Republicans out there protesting for it. So who's going to stand up for these people? It needs to be us. Because Democrats will only do it when they can use a racial uh, uh, element to it. But if a guy's bar is getting stolen in San Antonio to make way for the Alamo and the state government is doing this, who's going to stand up for that guy? When I went to that rally in San Antonio for Moses Roses, it it was one Republican who was part of the Republican Liberty Caucus and a bunch of libertarians. We need to multiply those efforts because when they see us out there being willing to fight for people's rights. When you see someone like Chase Oliver giving the city council hell for build, building Cop City, I don't care what, if you disagree with of his politics, that makes a statement. Because normally you see Democrats doing that and nobody else, but Democrats don't do it all the time. We need to be the ones fighting for people's rights. That, that can be us, and we have an opportunity to start making inroads through activism and through activism against all government abuse. Civil asset asset forfeiture, eminent domain. The the list goes on and on. That's stuff that libertarians care about. So we need to be the ones out there fighting against that.
0: And I feel like it's so important because we have the right answer. Whereas if your objection to something is, well, there's inequality in, uh, in how such a thing is enforced well, then we just need to start arresting more Asians, Hispanics, and whites. Or uh, The the draft is sexist. It's explicitly male-only if you go to SelectiveService.gov. So if inequality is bad, we just need to start enslaving women. There's an actual policy the Pentagon has that any military-aged male over the age of— is any male over 16 or older. So they're not counted as a civilian death. So— if the problem is inequality, you just need to start murdering women 16 years wow. old, uh, and older. But once you see the problem is initiating violence against peaceful people, that really cuts the rug out much more so than playing this ridiculous disparity game. Um, so yeah, I think you are uh, totally right. Um, you had a great one called Myth. Libertarians don't believe in laws. What is the truth behind this myth?
1: <laughs> so uh- I wrote that, and I'm, I'll be writing more about different myths about libertarianism, because one thing that I've always noticed, even before I came into the movement, is that most of what people think about libertarianism is based on either lies or misconceptions. Now, some of that we can blame on the uniparty, right, because they spread false narratives, the media, things like that we got to take some responsibility for that too. Cause some of that's our fault because we're not messaging appropriately. We're not getting out there. And yes, I know it's harder for us because they try to work to push us out. That's not an excuse I'm, uh, to borrow a, a phrase from the conservatives. We need to take personal responsibility and educate people. So I wrote that as an educational type of thing. And the, the idea is that, and I actually wrote one yesterday about whether Christians can be libertarians and things like that. And the difference between a, uh, A Christian who's a libertarian and a Christian who might be a a progressive or a conservative. The idea is that we believe in rules or a law and order, depending on whether you're, you know, you're a minarchist or an anarchist. But the idea is that what we believe in is don't hurt other people. Don't attack other people. Don't take their stuff. If it's anything outside of that, we don't want to throw you in jail for it. So, to us is like, we do have rules. It's just, we have a different point of view as to where where the government should be in enforcing those those rules or even morals, right? Because I I like, for instance, I personally think that it's morally wrong to get addicted to and strung out on drugs, whether that's alcohol or something else. Do I wanna lock you in a cage for that though? No, I don't. I think that there are other ways as as a society, we need to deal with that as a community. So when it comes to law and order, my idea of law and order is that law enforcement is going after people who hurt people, who steal their stuff, who defraud people. Those are the rules that that we should be enforcing. When it comes to stuff like, you know, what kind of plant you have, or if you have a sticker on your car, or if you want to build a deck on your home, that kind of thing. Yeah, the the government shouldn't have a whole lot to do with that. So we do believe in quote unquote law and order and in laws we just have a different approach to it than than your more status crowd.
0: I've always said that, and it's been shocking to me. We say that we don't want the state uh, having, you know, th- these unique laws and coercively imposing them. And they and what they hear is, we don't want any rules or laws. No, rules and laws are so vitally important. The worst approach is for one group to have a monopoly on rules and laws, and that's why uh, private property and voluntary exchange and communities are so vitally important. When you were writing this article, did you come across an origin of where this myth started? Because it's so obviously fake. It had to have been an intellectual who said it on stage and wouldn't shut up, and then everyone just believed it.
1: You know, I'm not sure where it actually would have started from, but realistically, we could argue that this myth started long, long before any any of us were born. It reminds me of that quote from Fred Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat where um, I'm, I'm not going to say the quote word for word because I can't remember it all, but what he says about what socialists think, you know, basically the socialist thinks that if you don't want the government to do something, that means you don't want it done. Now, he used the word socialist. I would use the word status today because it's conservatives and socialists who do this too. You know, if, if like for instance, if I'm against prostitution, which I am, I, I don't think it's moral, but I don't want the government to throw people in jail for it. So to them that means that I want prostitution to happen. So to me th- this is a brainwashing that we've been going through for centuries. So I would say that that argument probably started long before the libertarian party or the liberty movement really took off because people have been conditioned by the government and by the, the opinion molders that we were just talking about to believe that we're suppo- that if we want something to happen or if we think something is evil or wrong that we should support government Action against it with the threat of physical force.
0: Yeah, it's it's just so weird because the conservatives will say free speech is vitally important. To which you could respond, so you condone everything everyone says ever. And it's like, well, no, of course not. I just believe this is a better process for achieving truth in a civilized society than putting people in jail for speech. And I go, well, then why do you think I'm obsessed with hookers every time I say people shouldn't be caged for uh? consensual yeah. acts between uh, uh, adults that is just such a shocking one so let me give you another myth and uh please let this be the next article libertarianism is defined as isolationist dog-eat-dog every man for himself uh worldview what if anything is wrong with that
1: you know what's funny about that they some people will say that about conservatives too um like say like like for an example i don't i don't know if you're familiar with a guy named king randall um, he's in Albany, Georgia, and he has a school for boys, specifically for black disadvantaged children, and um, he gets donations for it. So I saw somebody criticize him one day saying, well, wait, aren't you supposed to be the party of personal responsibility? He, 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 he's not even a Republican, but he's seen as a conservative. But he, he, they're saying, well, you shouldn't be asking for donations if you're supposed to be personal responsibility and not getting handouts. No, if you're a conservative, what you think is that the, the government shouldn't be doing it that we as a community should be doing it. And there's, that's where there's overlap with the liberty movement. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, maybe some people believe in the dog eat dog world thing, but no, especially if, if you're a Christian libertarian, we as a community should be taking care of these things rather than just uh, trying to have the government steal money from other people to pay to, to solve that problem. You know, even, even going back to prostitution, if you don't like prostitution, and, and especially if you're a Christian, then where's your ministry to help get those people off the street and help lead them into better lives? You don't need to steal money from other people to pay men with guns and badges to throw them in cages thinking that's gonna solve the problem because you know it doesn't. Even if it's drugs, you know the war on drugs has failed. I would trust a Pastor Moses or a Christian ministry with getting people off of drugs and getting people out of prostitution then I would ever, ever trust the government. If I had to choose between the two, I wouldn't even hesitate. I would choose the ministry. Or even if it doesn't even have to be a Christian ministry, if if that's just your passion, helping counsel people off of drugs, I trust you way more than I trust a man with a gun and a badge. So that's really all that means. It doesn't mean dog eat dog. It means we as a community take the responsibility that we have abdicated to this Uh, this deity that we call the government. Because yes, we we do practice ideology with our government.
0: Yeah, certainly. It's amazing. You see things like computers or TVs or microphones or iPads, and you can just look at it and say, okay, this took like a billion people in a complex web of voluntary social interactions in order to get to this point. And they call that isolationism every man for himself. (laughs) But it's not dog eat dog. When all of when Trump and DeSantis are explicitly lying about each other and slandering each other, and they're <laughs> going to have a race to see who wins, one person wins, the other loses. How is that? Dog th- dog. That is more dog eat dog than me going to the supermarket, going to Best Buy, going to uh, any private organization, and it's much more harmonious. Every time I'm at a private organization and I buy something, I always get something like. Thank you. Please come again. I've never been thanked by a teacher or a cop or a soldier or a politician for being a taxpayer. I've been a net taxpayer for 11 years. Well, there was one year (laughs) where I kind of dozed off a little and and things were rough. Okay, let's call it 10 years I've been a net taxpayer and I've never been thanked. They're the dog-eat-dog ones who don't believe in stable rules. It's okay to murder civilians if they're in Dresden or Hiroshima or Afghanistan. They always do these untruths, which are not just fake.
1: They're the opposite of truth where it's they don't projection. even believe it's in that. It's projection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do Saying, oh, you just want dog eat dog. Well, no, you're, you're the one who wants to steal money from other people to eat them. And to, no, no, we already have dog eat dog. Our government eats us all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, dog eat dog is voluntary exchange. You know what's not greedy? Threatening to cage people for not chipping in for wars based on lies and schools that don't teach you uh, anything intellectual. Um. Thank you so much for your time. I have two more questions for you. If I am someone who comes at things from a leftist point of view, I generally see uh, all situations as there being a division between the oppressed and the oppressor. How do you sell me on libertarianism? Mm.
1: Wow. Wow. That's a good question. I like this. Uh, So if you're coming from the left, I mean... The difficult part is that you already have a lot of trust in the government. But then again, on the right, you do too, just in different areas. I would say if you're really concerned about oppression and you actually mean what you say, then you want to weaken the entity that does the most oppression. And you would agree that the government does most of the oppression because you're always complaining about how it hurts people who look like me, how it hurts uh, 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 transgender folks, members of the LGBTQ community, So if the government isn't able to do those things, then maybe we should rethink the government. I would ask them, you know, when it comes to all these things, how has the government really helped? If you're talking about the plight of black Americans, how much has it really done to help us? Oh, Civil Rights Act? Okay, great. Why was the Civil Rights Act necessary in the first place? Wasn't it because of what the government had already been doing? So you're telling me that the government has to make itself stronger to fix the things that it already broke. And this has been a cycle that has gone on on, along. You tell me, where has this really helped?
0: Yeah, government is the abusive boyfriend who stops abusing you and says, you know, you're welcome for stopping the abuse. It's like, can we get to the root cause of this before you start taking all uh, all the credit? Of course. Yeah, uh, really the Civil Rights Act was like a major deregulation at a uh, federal level because all of these kind regulations that I'm sure were intended to keep us safe. Uh, m- before I get to the last question, have you read any uh, anything as far as how Jim Crow laws were justified? I keep forgetting to look into that, like how they were pub- sold to the public as being in the public interest. There had to have been some sort of Jim Crow segregation campaign where, look, it's actually in your interest. I mean, yeah. there's so many evil whites out there that we're keeping you guys safe by segregating you. You're welcome
1: you know what i want i want to look deeper into that but when i was coming up i mean as, as a kid when i was learning about these things i mean there was certain slogans like oh this is the natural order you know people should keep to mm-hmm. their own race they didn't really but if you think about it now that i'm thinking about it there wasn't much logic behind it it was just more assumed well yeah white people should keep to white people black people should keep to black people you know, it kind of comes out of the anti-slavery doctrine because there were the abolitionists and then there were the anti-slavery. Anti-slavery thought that slavery should be abolished, but that doesn't mean that we're at, on par with whites. That doesn't mean that we deserve all the same mm-hmm. rights. We just shouldn't be enslaved. Abolitionists were like, no, burn this whole thing down. They're just as equal as us. Give, give, Start protecting their rights, all that stuff. So I think that it, it just came from a, a sense of, you know, this is just the natural order of these things. White keeps the white, black keeps the black, you know, and never the two shall meet. And, you know, and blacks have to be inferior because, I mean, are you going to let a black person be, you know, what you need to be? That they're threatening our jobs. They're going to threaten your jobs. They're going to sleep with our women. I've heard all of that. So I think that those were, I I suspect that when I start doing more research on this, because now you've inspired me, I'm going to find that exact same thing, but there are no real logical arguments to it because there really it doesn't make sense.
0: Well, I could see it just relying on the fear of the unknown. So when Bernie Sanders, man of the people, was asked by Ezra Klein, a guy who works for Vox, he goes, "Um, so we should have certainly an open borders policy so the poorest people can have the most amount of freedoms to which Bernie Sanders said, oh, no, that's a Koch brothers policy that they're using for cheap labor. And it turns out a lot of these progressives will say that we don't support things like free immigration, because if too many of them come at once, it'll hurt our jobs, it'll change the culture of uh, the way things operate, and really poor vulnerable people Uh, will suffer. And these immigrants are going to come here and get really taken advantage of. So even in the long run, it's not really in their interest. And what, we can just have 10, 20, 50 million immigrants come in overnight. We don't have the resources. It's just too much. So we are going to judge people based on an arbitrary accident of birth, where they came Mm -hmm. out of their mother's womb and forcibly stop them from coming into America and making voluntary exchanges between consenting adults. I could see that same thing happening with blacks. That's how it was sold. Look, ideally, it could work. But in reality, because of all these other injustices, we just can't have this equality thing. Um, uh, Why do you think uh, it's fear? Because we could be equally afraid of state tyranny. Uh, Why is it fear that always results in states getting more power as opposed to uh, us being able to capitalize on fear and saying, yeah, I'm really afraid the government's going to provoke a third world war over uh, the Donbass republics?
1: Uh, Because it goes back to what you were saying about education. And anybody who knows about the origin of compulsory education, that's where the indoctrination really started. A lot of people on the right think that the indoctrination started a few years ago. No, it's been there from the beginning. Uh, We've been indoctrinated since then. And we have been indoctrinated to believe that the government is our friend that protects us from the things that we should fear. So we don't fear the government. Why would we fear the government? They don't do anything to us, they take care of us. They, they protect us. They, they make sure that foreign armies don't invade. They make sure that we don't become 90% drugged out because of the war on drugs. If, without the war on drugs, we would have all kinds of people on the street drugged out. Um, you know, we need the government to take care of our poor. We shouldn't do it, we can't do it. The government can do it. So it's okay for them to steal our money because they're gonna use it for, for a good purpose. They don't really oppress us all that much. Yeah, you know, the Patriot Act seems a little, you know, maybe a little much, but I don't want to get blown up by 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 an Islamic terrorist. I don't want them flying planes into buildings. And and on top of that, if I say that I'm against this, I'm un-American an anyway. So I, you know, yeah. So that's why we're, we're afraid of the wrong thing. We're angry at the wrong thing. We've been... It's national Stockholm syndrome. That's what it is. It's status Stockholm syndrome. We've been conditioned to think that the government is our savior and our friend. Yeah, it's got some issues here and there. Yeah, sometimes cops kill people that they shouldn't kill, whatever. But overall, I mean, it's great, isn't it? So I think that that's the issue. I think we're afraid of the wrong thing. And we've been conditioned to be afraid of the wrong things. And while we're afraid of those things, we're not seeing who's really hurting us.
0: When it comes to what is your message to someone on the right, maybe whenever they look at a situation or event, they see it as a uh, divide between civilization and barbarism, and we must do what it takes to hold up the civilized ends of society to avoid barbaric uh, degeneracy. How do you communicate libertarianism to them?
1: Yeah, I agree. Do you actually believe what you say you believe, though? Because you say that you value limited government, but- if a cop shoots somebody, you'll tell me about how most cops are great. And pretty yeah, uncivilized. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, it's fine. So to me, do you actually believe what, what you say you believe? You know, if you actually are for a limited government, then we got to be for a limited government. Not, if you're conservative, chances are you profess to be a Christian. When it comes to the societal ills in our society, do you believe that the government is best equipped to handle that? Or do you believe that the churches? Do you believe that the teachings of Christ and the Holy Spirit are better equipped to handle those things? If you really believe that, then why are you putting government in that place? Yeah, sure. I mean, we have to deal with people who actually hurt other people, people who steal from other people. But again, like if if you're correct, then why do we need ministries in the first place? Let's just have the government do it. And and honestly, I've had some of these conversations, Keith, with with, with conservatives, because most of my audience is conservative and libertarian. I've got some people on the left who follow me. But a lot of the people who end up coming around, they say, yeah, you know, I didn't think about a lot, a lot of these things because we take them for granted, right? Like the sticker on your car. I always took it for granted. I never questioned that until later in life. Um, you know, other things I may have, I, I questioned the, the need for driver's licenses, but a lot of the stuff that we live under, we're brainwashed. And we don't, think outside of that so we just think oh yeah this is just the way it is but we don't ask why does the government really need to require a license to go fishing does a lot government really need to require a license to be able to to do somebody's hair when i start putting it to them that way and when i frame what the government does by reminding them that it is the government police are part of the government You start. I start getting uh, more heads nodding. I mean, look at what happened under COVID. You think that's okay? Well, they've been doing that stuff to black people and white people long before that, just for different reasons. So it's really getting them to see why they believe what they believe, because they say they're for limited government, but I don't think they really understand why. I don't think that they understand that we live under tyranny. Yeah, we're not living in North Korea. I get that, but that doesn't mean that our government is good. So to me, when I point these things out and I say, "Hey, conservatives," This is what your government's doing. Well, are you, are, are you on board with it? And honestly, some are. Some say they're conservative, but they're really status and they're not really for a limited government. Others will start to think.
0: Yeah, one of the essays that uh, people were surprised most by in the Voluntarist Handbook, this is a collection of 50 essays that I put together that uh, made me go from being a progressive to being a uh, Voluntarist uh, Libertarian. Uh, One of them is titled The Reluctant Anarchist by Joe Sobrin. You can read the entire PDF for free right here at libertarianinstitute.org. And he said, I was never an anarchist because I said, well, we live in a society and we need laws. And it turns out that the government having a monopoly on laws is not the same as having no laws. And he uses the example of the interstate commerce uh, clause within the Constitution. He goes, let's look at the, the words in this. The state has the right to regulate interstate commerce, which at the time clearly meant make regular to allow all the states to treat freely. It was later interpreted by the Supreme Court. Nine Ivy League uh, presidential appointed individuals that what this actually means is they can, the government can control what you grow on your own land. Mm. Because if you grow something on your land, that actually changes the supply and demand and affects the price of the interstate commerce and uh, affects everyone. So, therefore, uh, the Agricultural Adjustment Act and things of the like are able to control what anyone grows on any aspect of land. That's how they interpreted. Free trade in the Supreme Court, and Joe Sobrin was uh, the senior editor at National Review with William F. Buckley for 18 years. Later became an anarchist because he became friends wow. with Murray Rothbard and Hans Hoppe. Great story. Um, all right, th- this is actually the final question. Then I'll let you go. Um, there are a lot of criticisms of the free market: doggy dog, profit seeking. Has fallible people, has uh, asymmetric information. The problem is, all of these criticisms apply many times over to government. Have you come across any unique criticisms of the free market that do not apply to government?
1: No, uh, just criticisms that they think don't apply to the government. A lot of times, a lot, a lot of the times, people don't really understand how deeply our government affects everything. And it gets to the point where I even start. Uh, getting concerned, do I just sound like I'm just blaming everything on the government? (laughs) Well, kind of, yeah, I am, but not everything. I mean, yeah, I mean, we just talked about issues with, with the Black community. I said that there are things that we should have been doing as well and that we should still be doing. But I think really criticism of any libertarian idea, whether it's free market or something else, comes from the lack of awareness that it's the government that's causing the problem that you're complaining about in the first place. Even if it's not 100% responsible and there's other factors, it's still a huge factor because our government has grown that big to where it actually can have that big of a hand in in, in causing these problems.
0: So uh, if people wanna check out one of the, you have quite the archive here on Chasing Liberty. What is one article that you would recommend I uh, link in the description that people should check out for themselves
1: i would say there was one title this was a while ago that i wrote it but make let's make local politics sexy again i think that that's the building block that's where we really need to be focused and if i if there's one thing that i would want people to read that would be the article
0: case for making local government sexy again that's right very nice that will be in the description thanks to everyone for watching keith and i don't tread on anyone in the libertarian institute mr charles thank you so much for your time
1: thank you i appreciate it